morning. And if you don't mind, I just want to take a moment to take in each face. I find the wonderful gift of Zoom is the ability to see faces in a way that I never have actually taken in people. Um, sometimes a face is important, but very often I take in people kind of as a whole body. And um, faces are amazing. Thank you very much for being here this morning. I was just noticing um, in the chant we just did by our ancestor Dogen, how many times the word Buddha occurs. And if I didn't already notice it, I would because of all the little red underlinings. Buddha, 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 Bodhi, Buddha, Buddhas and ancestors. And um, that's great because that's uh, who I wanted to talk about a little bit today and actually engage with you uh, before we end uh, a practice taught by our ancestor Shakyamuni Buddha. This is a, a, a kind of a very special, this past week has been a very special week in um, the Buddhist world. Most of Buddhist, most Buddhist traditions um, honor uh, the holiday of Vesak. You may have heard of something about this. And um, this is a, uh, this week, this year it was on May 7th. It's, it's associated with the full moon. So it's a different date each year, kind of, uh, I think, like Easter is in the Christian tradition. Uh, and Passover in the Jewish tradition. It's a different date, but it's always the first full moon in May. And in the tradition of, um, in Buddhist traditions, in many stories, uh, the Buddha was born on a specific date, was enlightened on that same date some years later, and passed into uh, Parinirvana on that same date some years after that. And it's associated with the full moon of May. Um, I, uh, in the Japanese tradition, we celebrate Buddha's enlightenment um, in December. But when I first heard about Vesak, I uh, kind of really uh, felt some affinity to it because uh, in the various stories that are given of Buddha's enlightenment, um, uh, they talk about uh, he became enlightened at the rising of the morning star. And the morning star is Venus. And this is the time of... Uh, that sign astrologically and uh, Venus, Venus's visibility, as I understand. So, I always feel like um, this is a good time to celebrate Buddha's enlightenment as well. I don't know about the other stuff. Um, the Buddha, the person who was the Buddha, who became the Buddha, um, when he was the Buddha, uh, was most known at that time for his compassion. Um, early teachings and scholarly teachings from more present day emphasize this fact that if you heard about the Buddha in those days, what you heard about was this person of enormous compassion. In Zen, we, we emphasize a lot Buddha's wisdom which of course is also uh, important. But um, I think, and, and many do, 
that this is a wisdom that arose from the cultivation of great compassion um, over many lifetimes. And when I studied the life of Buddha, which I did at one point quite a bit, and the various stories that have come down to us, um, because we don't know really anything but what was written hundreds of years after he died. But um, uh, I began to see in his life, before he was enlightened, um, various compassionate awakenings. So I appreciate the great awakening under the Bodhi tree and I had the great blessing of sitting under that tree or one of its progeny at Mogaya. So I have deep uh, feeling for that uh, part of the story but there's some other part of the story, parts of the story that came first, and I began to see that um, compassion and enlightenment aren't just in a, a single moment. They are, but they're not just in a single moment. And um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about my story of the Buddha's life taken from what I understand, um, and you can see if, if it appeals to you too. Um, so... Buddha's name uh, was Gautama, or Gotama, depending on what language you're putting it in. Um, he was known as Gotama of the Shakyas. That was his clan, the Shakya clan. And he was the son of a leader of the Shakya clan, often called a prince. I don't know that they use that term, but he was a leader, and, uh, or the son of a leader, destined to inherit. Um, he lived a life of great privilege and protection, and... Um, his way was pretty much set out for him in terms of his, his career. His career, his privilege would carry on. Um, but compassion was awakened in him. And this compassion was awakened in him because he had some seeings. He saw some events. He met some people. And um, so the first awakening of compassion was when he encountered or met a very sick person. And probably this person was visibly ill. And as I tell this story and as I thought about this story, I think, wow, this is a story for our time. This is a story for our time. Sickness, um, visible sickness. Um, so he saw that. And what arose in him was compassion for that person and uh, a wondering what he could do to end such a thing because he found out it was prevalent. It wasn't just one person, it was prevalent. Um, and then um, he encountered a very old person and probably a person who, uh, who the infirmities of the old age was very visible. Once again, um, the world is calling to our attention the fate of the very old, who are among the people suffering greatly from this uh, illness that we've got going in our world.
And um, he wondered how to end the suffering that comes with this kind of um, aging process. Um, the next encounter he had to further awaken his compassion was he saw a corpse, a funeral procession with a corpse. And that brought to mind pictures I've seen of the trucks parked out of side of hospitals in our very town. And we know that there are bodies there, people like us who have died. And I think for all of us, we may be experiencing the rising of compassion just as the Buddha did in seeing these facts. Governor Cuomo likes to talk about facts. I watch him. <laughs> We're seeing these facts. It's not abstractions anymore. And the great gift is if it gives rise to compassion. So I'll go on with the story because it was a gift. Seeing these sufferings was a gift for the Buddha. Um, his last encounter was seeing a person who was a renunciate, a person who clearly had given up nice clothes, comfort, um, wealth, if there was any. This person who had renounced regular life and was seeking wisdom. And so the Buddha developed the intention to pursue his quest for understanding suffering and its end uh, by becoming a renunciate. So he gave up his privilege, he left his home, he left his beautiful horse and his servant. His stories go on in detail about some of this. And he joined the renunciates. And the renunciates he met in the forest uh, were practicing meditation and he began to um, study meditation. And he was very good at it. He picked it up really quickly. It brought him peace, concentration, maybe even bliss. And he was so good at it that his teachers wanted to make him a teacher too. So he kind of rose to the top pretty quickly in this meditation uh, world. But the meditation and the bliss didn't quite meet what he was looking for, which was how to deal with suffering, not just for himself. Because maybe with meditation, his own suffering was kind of pretty, you know, pretty limited. But he understood that everybody was suffering. And so he said no to what he was good at, to what the, uh, his teachers wanted to make him, you know, great teacher. Um, and he took up another practice that was very prevalent at the time. This is called, we call it austerity. And there are still renunciates who practice uh, similar kinds of austerities. Um, he um, ate very, very little. Some stories say, you know, half a grain of rice or less a day. He wore no clothes, he lived 
uh, in caves or outside. He suffered the hot, the cold, um, without any protection. He gave up really caring for his body. And in this way, he hoped that he would learn, um, he would bring an end to karma, which of course is part of what creates suffering. He didn't bathe, uh, he became very skeletal, and he had some uh, friends with him doing the same thing. Um, he was willing to take this all the way to death, and, and there were practitioners in those days who in fact, that was their point, they wanted to end karma by ending the body. They thought that would be um, the best way to end suffering in the world was just to kill themselves so they wouldn't create any suffering in the world. And this is the one I think is, is kind of amazes me, is somewhere in this, this uh, Gotama, the Shakyas, figured out he might end his own suffering with death, but he wasn't ending anybody else's. And so he gave it up, not because it was unpleasant or just to save his own skin, but because he realized it was not the answer to his question. And at that moment, he began to understand that there was, had to be another way, a way he later called a middle way, a, lay, a way he called the middle way between austerity and um, uh, uh, self-indulgence. So he left the caves in the mountains, went down into a forested valley, it's said in northern India. Um, on the way, he encountered uh, a young woman who lived in a nearby village, and she was carrying some piasum. It's a piasum as a made today. I knew very well someone who made piasum. Um, it's uh, it's often taken at the end of a fast. It's a rice milk pudding, um, and it's also um, healing. It's a sattvic food, so uh, it's given to people who are sick. So um, he encountered a young woman from the village who was taking this to uh, uh, someone who was sick. And she saw his gaujama state of emaciation and she gave it to him instead. And then she went back and made some more for the person she was supposed to feed. And he ate it. And then uh, there's a river ro uh, flowing through right next to Bodh Gaya. Um, and he entered the river and he washed his body um, he cleaned it, he cleaned his hair, and then he um, went into the forest, which was right near the river, and sitting fairly close to the main road that people would be walking on so that he would be able to be the recipient of their kindness, he sat under a, a giant canopy, forested canopy of trees, we call this the Bodhi tree now, um, these trees still exist in India. Um, and he sat there, and in sitting down, in taking care of his body, in determining still to find an end to the suffering, but now to try a more moderate way, um, he entered the path. Um, so for me, it's like, uh, this was an act of compassion for himself in the sense that I think he understood that he wasn't going to help anybody else 
by torturing himself. That compassion had to, had to start first right here. And this compassion was not indulgent. Um, it, was, it was a very uh, moderate view of how to be a being in this world. So I see this as a story of his growth in compassion. When he sat down, he remembered a meditation practice that he had spontaneously experienced as a child under another tree, the rose apple tree. And um, this was different than the concentration techniques that he had mastered quite well. Um, and he thought perhaps this is uh, the compassionate way with the mind. Um, this is, uh, you know, as a Zen person, I think of it as Zazen. This open, welcoming, non-judgmental mind that is not trying to gain anything. Um, so in my story, Buddha discovered what we call Zazen, or he practiced it, he committed himself to it. And he committed himself to being there Again, he's not going to change until he's come to the end of his quest. And then there's one more um, story of compassion, and that is um, there are many stories of what happened to him under that tree. One story is that a representation of death, Mara, came to try and get him to give up his quest. And Mara tried a lot of different ways. Um, Buddha met every challenge, or the Buddha to be met every challenge. Um, the last challenge which has always touched my heart and it was the first time I thought the Buddha might be kind of a cool guy is uh, Mara said, hey, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. Give it up. And Buddha didn't fall for it, and he didn't engage with it. He just took one hand and touched the ground. And he called upon the earth, the earth, his mother, our mother, to witness his right to be there. And in some stories, the goddess of the earth, Pritivi, rises up and what she witnesses Tamara and what she says is this person has for many lifetimes practiced compassion. She didn't say practice wisdom, she said practiced compassion. And uh, in the story, many of the stories, Mara departs at that point. There's no response to that. There's no response to uh, you can't tell someone who meets suffering for lifetimes with compassion that they're not worthy to sit there and find an end to suffering for all beings. Um, so this is my story of um, Buddha's awakening. That was an awakening. He touched the earth before he ever saw, before he ever became wise, before he ever had insight. He touched the earth. So I, I, I see that as the sort of the final stage of compassion before his great enlightenment. So 
awakening to compassion again and again is how he has taught us to live in this world of suffering so that we don't become overwhelmed by the suffering so that we don't become hardened by the suffering that we don't become distracted from the suffering that we don't become lost in the suffering So there's always been suffering in the world, nothing new, always has been. But these days I think we are given the gift to notice it more, a little harder to distract ourselves. And um, we also have the gift of noting that pretty much everybody in the world is kind of suffering right now. They always are, but we just don't notice it. But now we have this gift to feel connected that this word compassion with suffering is the sort of the root of the English word from the Latin. And so we have the opportunity actually um, every day to be with suffering of people everywhere. And the news cycle has not ended. And in addition to our, our plague, terrible sufferings come forth out of the media every day. People share sufferings of people every day. And um, so this is a time we can um, be sensitive to it with compassion. So uh, how can we be... um, how can we develop this compassion, you know, without getting lost in it or distracted from it or hardened by it or all the ways that we um, turn away? So um, a very early teaching of the Buddha to his followers um, was a meditation practice. And um, uh it was a practice of purification and a practice of interdependence. So it was a wisdom practice, but it starts with compassion. And I'm sure many of you have heard of it. Um, the term for it is metabhavana. So we chant the metta sutta every day. We're chanting the metta sutta. And metabhavana is actually a, a technique of meditation and still practiced, um, widely taught. Um, So metta is a Pali word. Uh, The Sanskrit is metri, and we translate it loving kindness. But the root of it just means friend. But, you know, this is a really good friend. This is a friend who's who's had your back, who's been there for you and for for whom you've been there for. This is a person who is honest to you and you can be honest with. This is, this is a very uh, deep friendship, this kind of friend. And um, so that's the kind of loving kindness um, that is being evoked here. Um, so it's not just some abstract word. It is the way your body feels when you're around a friend, a true friend and the way that you try to be a true friend. So in this practice, and a bhavana means to cultivate, 
uh, it comes uh, from the root of bringing into being. So being is the, the basis of it, to bring into being. So again, um, the sense of um, uh, corporality of, of, of this practice, um, not just an idea, but uh, gardeners know what cultivation is. Um, so we do the same thing in our spiritual practices. We try to cultivate, we try to cultivate a being, a body, that not only sees their friends as friends, but eventually, through much practice, can see every being as a friend, even a COVID-19, even some of the terrible people. Uh, well, they're not terrible people, but they're, they do terrible things. And I think of them as terrible people, I confess. So this is a practice. It's not something that happens all at once. Maybe it's a lifetime, many, it's many lifetimes, like, like Gotama, many lifetimes of cultivating compassion. And um, I thought uh, it would be nice to practice this today. I thought it would be helpful. And it would connect us not only with our founder, Shakyamuni Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, but also um, with um, other beings. To practice metta bhavana, we first need to um, engage in some basic meditative practices. So first of all, I would like to invite you to do this, and I'm wondering if if that's okay, if you would be willing to join me in this practice for a little bit. Can you raise your thumb if, if, you, if you feel like that's an okay thing? And if you feel like it's not an okay thing for you right now, please uh, just witness um, in your own way what uh, you would like, uh, your own thoughts, your own feelings. So to begin, we... Um, bring compassionate attention, as the Buddha did, to this body and this mind. So in whatever way you can find a posture of ease and balance. There are four postures named in Buddhism. Excuse me, I have to change my posture <laughs> for ease and balance. Um, standing, sitting, lying down, and walking. And they represent all the possible postures. So, um, but uh, there, there are postures that are more helpful and less helpful to each individual. But I invite you to explore the posture that brings ease and stability to your body with compassion. And then um, finding ease and stability in the mind um, can involve some concentration. So Buddha did study concentration practices and they brought him ease mentally. didn't solve the suffering of the world, but it did help his own mental suffering. So uh, one of the most widespread, oldest practices for concentration is to bring the attention to the breath. 
And as you watch and feel the breath coming in and out, and maintain or return constantly, whatever's going on for you, um, your attention to the breath, there can bring some ease and stability to the mind. This is a possibility. This is a compassionate practice for one's own body-mind. Just this brings uh, ease and stability to oneself. So just taking a few moments to settle. This metabhavana is a system of meditation, and we're not going to do the whole system, <laughs> um, but we're going to practice part one and part two. So in metabhavana, one first attends to this person, this, this being. And we send through the exhalation and the inhalation warmth and love to this being, you. And there are many things, there are many ways to formulate this um, verbally. Today I, I will offer something very simple. But as you inhale, you may say to yourself something like, may I be happy and well and free of suffering. Each breath in, may I be happy and well and free of suffering. May I be happy and well and free of suffering. And understand that this metabhavana practice is a practice of a lifetime or many lifetimes. So when this sense of metta towards one's own being arises, one can then take the next stage of practice, which is to offer this to someone we love and respect someone we have affection for. And today, you may select whomever you wish, but I would like to suggest that we as a Sangha extend metta to our guiding teacher, Kosen, who is sick. So you are free to name and visualize the person that you would like to extend metta to. I'm going to verbally out loud name Kosen and you can join me in that as well. As I exhale, may Kosen be happy, well, and free of suffering. Each exhalation I send 
metta to Kosen. May Kosen be happy and well and free from suffering. And as I'm thinking of Kosen, I am aware that the monks at Ancestral Heart are having a hard time. This is a very difficult challenge. And so I would like myself to include each and all of them. And I'm going to name them one at a time, even though I'm sending well-being to all of them. As I exhale, I'm thinking, may Tia be happy and well and free of suffering. May Laura be happy and well and free of suffering. And those monks who are currently here, when you hear your name, please open your heart and receive this metta. Let it fill your body and then you can exhale it to someone else. As I breathe out, may Kai Shin be happy and well and free of suffering. May Ryan be happy and well and free of suffering. May Julia be happy and well and free of suffering. May Emily be happy and well and free of suffering. May Matthew be happy and well and free of suffering. And may this Sangha be happy and well and free of suffering. May someday I have, I succeed in cultivating a mind and body that wishes all beings, all beings, to be happy and well and free of suffering. May our intention equally... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.